0: Good afternoon, and thank you for joining today's Boston Bar Association panel, Intro to ESG: What You Need to Know and Looking Ahead. My name is Lauren Karam and I am the co-chair of the Air Quality and Climate section of the BBA's Environmental and Energy Law Committee. We are joined today by three distinguished attorneys working in various sectors of ESG. First, Kirsten Gruver is an associate at Beverage and Diamond in the firm's Seattle office. Kirsten's practice focuses on climate change. ESG and sustainability and product stewardship. Her diverse environmental litigation and regulatory practice also includes working with clients nationwide on carbon offset development projects and natural resource issues involving forest products and fisheries. Kirsten is a graduate of the University of Washington Law School. Next joining us today is Jacob Hupart. Jacob is a partner at Mintz in the firm's New York office. Jacob has a multifaceted litigation practice that encompasses complex commercial litigation, securities litigation, including class action claims, as well as white collar criminal defense and regulatory investigations. Jacob frequently writes and publishes articles on the legal and regulatory issues impacting ESG disclosures, climate change, and pending environmental litigation. Jacob is a graduate of Harvard Law School. Rounding out our panel today, is Nikki Adame Winningham. Nikki is climate and sustainability lead counsel within the environmental and sustainability law team of Pfizer's legal division. Nikki provides timely decision useful advice regarding sustainability, ESG priorities, and environmental and human rights legal requirements, including mandatory and voluntary disclosures. Nikki is a graduate of Tulane University Law School. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Kirsten.
1: Thanks Lauren. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here today. My portion of today's panel is going to focus on just giving a high level of what ESG is and diving into a bit of what each of those ESNG factors means. And so with that, let's get started. At a very high level, um, ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance. Uh, Each of these factors have their own meaning as well. The environmental factor tends to focus on how companies measure climate and sustainability efforts. This includes things like reducing carbon emissions or assessing resource use or energy use. The social factor focuses on how companies interact with their employees and the communities within which they operate. And then the governance factor focuses on a company's decision-making processes with regards to the distribution of rights and responsibilities among different corporate participants, such as board of directors, managers, shareholders, and stakeholders. That's a very high level, and we'll, next, we'll now dive into each of these factors in a bit more detail. The environmental factor of ESG, as I mentioned, focuses on topics such as corporate climate policies, carbon emissions, land use concerns, and sustainability goals and efforts more broadly. We've seen a number of actions under the environmental factor taken by both companies and federal and state governments and throughout the last couple of years. I think traditionally, a lot of the focus has been on mandatory climate disclosures, And at the federal level, we have a couple of examples. One is the SEC's proposed climate disclosure rule, which I won't go into too much detail because I know our next panelist will be covering that. Another example is the federal acquisitions regulation amendments that the Department of Defense, NASA, and the General Services Administration proposed earlier this year, which would require certain federal contractors to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risks, as well as set science-based targets to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and have those science-based targets verified. Unlike the SEC's proposed climate disclosure rules, these are not limited to public companies and instead would cover anyone considered to be a significant or a major contractor as defined in the proposal. In addition to these federal proposals, we've seen a couple of states introduce similar legislation that would mandate climate disclosures or climate-related disclosures. In California, there are two different ESG-related bills. The first is the California Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act. That's a mouthful. Which would require reporting entities to annually disclose Scopes 1, 2, and 3 emissions. Under the bill, reporting entities refers to corporations that are formed under California law or any other U.S. law with total annual revenues in excess of $1 billion that do business in California. Another bill, the Greenhouse Gases Climate-Related Financial Risk, also a mouthful, would require covered entities to annually prepare and publish a climate-related financial risk report in accordance with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures recommendations. New York is another state that has proposed similar legislation. They proposed a bill that is very similar to California's Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act, and it would apply to businesses based in the U.S. with annual revenues over $1 billion and would require these companies to annually report greenhouse gas emissions from their businesses. These emissions would include direct emissions, electricity use, and indirect emissions from the supply chain and other sources, and the reporting metrics would need to align with the greenhouse gas protocol standards. While mandatory disclosures have arguably been the focus, we've also seen an increase in ESG-related efforts in other areas. For example, we've seen a rise in corporate climate and sustainability goals across the industry. With that rise, though, we've also seen an increase in green marketing-focused litigation. The litigation has covered an entire gamut, and there have been a number of suits filed across, I guess, across the industry uh, for a variety of reasons. One example is a group of NGOs that filed suit against a natural gas company, alleging that it violated the District of Columbia Consumer Protection Act by misleading consumers about the environmental toll of natural gas. Specifically, the NGOs argued that the company's claims that the natural gas provides, quote, clean, efficient, and reliable energy is misleading because methane, according to the NGO, is not a clean energy source. That case is still pending, and as I said, it's just one of many, but that kind of gives you the flavor of some of the things that civil society is targeting when they look at these corporate sustainability goals and efforts. And then finally, we're starting to see a potential broadening of the environmental issues that are of interest within this arena. For example, we've seen a recent in a recent study that approximately 48% of investors reported that biodiversity was a significant factor in their investment policies compared to only 21% two years ago. Additionally, 68% of investors said that biodiversity is expected to be central or significant in the next two years. We've also seen the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures come into existence and it's developing a framework similar to that Climate-Related Financial Disclosures framework that is intended to provide companies and financial institutions with guidelines on how to integrate nature into their decision-making. That is kind of, a, I guess, a bombshell for you all in terms of, or not a bombshell, a high-level overview, uh, information download on the environmental factor. And with that, we will move to the social factor. As I mentioned at the beginning, the social factor tends to focus on tracking corporate performance in issues of pay equity, health and safety, diversity, equity and inclusion, and human rights and responsible sourcing. There are a number of different subcategories within this factor. One example is environmental justice. We've seen companies make efforts to draft and implement environmental justice policies that can be considered and consulted when conducting company operations. We've also seen the EPA recently announced a $100 million fund for environmental justice grants, which are intended to help overburdened and underserved communities by funding projects that address local environmental and public health issues within those communities. Another sub-area that we've seen within within this social arena is human rights and responsible sourcing. Companies often exercise due diligence, conduct third-party audits, and work directly with suppliers to ensure that their operations and supply chains are not contributing to human rights violations or abuses. We've also seen Efforts at the company level to diversify the workforce, which can often focus on greater gender and racial diversity. These efforts also include making a more hospitable environment within the workplace that fosters inclusion among employees. Finally, within this factor, we've seen efforts to improve working conditions for employees, as well as pay and benefits. Failure to embrace some of these efforts to improve worker conditions can have certain reputational impacts that we've seen. For example, a group of shareholders wrote Starbucks last year, urging the company to stop opposing the Starbucks workers' united momentum, arguing that its risk doing so risks the company's reputation, and the shareholders noted that Starbucks' continued anti-union efforts also risks alienating its consumer base. So much like the environmental factor, we've seen kind of a lot of action within this social factor, and those are just a couple of examples of what we see the social factor including and in how companies and entities are acting within this factor. Moving on to our last factor, governance, this refers to factors of decision-making from policy making to the distribution of rights and responsibilities among different participants in the company. Some of the subtopics that fall under this governance category include the role and makeup of boards of directors, compensation and oversight of top executives, and how corporate performance is measured. There are a number of different efforts that we've seen take place under this factor, which seems to be a theme. I guess that's why we're all here today. But one example is we've seen increase in efforts to diversify boards of directors, Companies have made efforts to seek out more diverse candidates to serve on their board, and they're also making diversity commitments in their annual reports. We've also seen an increase in action aimed at the boards of directors of companies, scrutinize civil society, increasing their scrutiny of the claims and efforts that companies are making. One example is a suit that was filed in the United Kingdom against a large oil and gas company's board of directors that alleged that the company's Directors breached their legal duties by failing to adopt and implement an energy transition strategy that aligns with the Paris Agreement. While this is an international case, we find it to be an example of the creativity behind many of these ESG related suits. And often, what we see in Europe can sometimes jump the pond, so to speak, and be kind of an instigator of new ideas here. We're also seeing kind of pivoting away from litigation. More companies link executive compensation to ESG performance. A recent study found that from 2020 to 2021, the share of S&P 500 companies incorporating DEI goals into executive compensation grew from 35% to 51%, and carbon footprint and emissions goals nearly doubled, increasing from 10% to 19%. Companies are most commonly tying executive compensation to human capital goals, with about 64% of S&P 500 companies incorporating that into executive pay, or tying that to executive pay, followed by social performance goals, governance performance goals, and environmental performance goals. And then finally, there continues to be a high number of climate-related shareholder resolutions. In the 2022 proxy season, there was a record number of agreements reached on climate-related shareholder resolutions where companies agreed to make certain commitments in exchange for a withdrawal of that resolution. Some of these agreements included electric utilities companies committing to set targets for reducing scope three greenhouse gas emissions. And that just kind of gives you the flavor for this governance arena. I think one of the big takeaways that i think of when I see ESG is that while initially maybe the focus was on the environmental factor or category, really we've seen it kind of spread and scrutiny and interest by both consumers and investors has really grown to incorporate all three of these factors. And with that, I will pass it off to my co-panelist,
2: Jacob.
3: <coughs> Thank you, Kirsten. <coughs> So thanks for that overview of um, ESG issues. Um, In my segment of the presentation, I'm gonna focus a bit more on the regulatory demands, which uh, various uh, government bodies are beginning to impose on uh, companies. So before going into these particular uh, government regulatory agencies, It's useful to talk about where these various ESG frameworks came from. So over the last, I'd say, decade, particularly over the last five or six years, there have been a number of stakeholders, a number of civil society groups who have been focused on effectively creating a framework for companies and other financial institutions to provide disclosures about ESG activities. This has mostly been uh, in the environmental space and focused on carbon emissions. Now there's a whole range of these groups. You've got the task force on climate related financial disclosures. You've got the global reporting initiative. You've got um, the SASB, a lot of alphabet soup. These are civil society organizations. And until now, None of these various independent frameworks had been endorsed by a government regulator. So you have a lot of companies, um, a lot of trade organizations trying to abide by one of these standards or another, which leads to a whole uh, mess of information being produced, but not leading to easy comparability um, or to really a standardization. Uh, Next slide. So in response to all of these uh, various proposals um, in the private sector, companies have been very inconsistent with respect to providing ESG related information. And here the slide lists some of the ways they provide information, some by doing standalone reports, others as part of their SEC filings, others just responding to surveys by rating agencies or other third parties, some engaging in all of these, but perhaps most importantly, a large number of companies didn't provide any ESG information whatsoever. And that lack of information has been uh, challenged by a number of uh, institutional investors and now uh, by the government. Uh, Next slide. Next slide. So, the probably the key rule which a lot of people who are working in this space have focused on for the last year is the proposed SEC rule, which is called the enhancement and the standardization of climate related disclosures for investors. Now, before we get into the details of this, it's important to note that the Biden administration had announced that this would be a priority of theirs from The beginning. Um, And the initial reports from the SEC had indicated this was going to be expected in October of 2021. It arrived six months later. Similarly, this particular rule was supposed to be finalized by this past December. Surprise, surprise, we still don't have a final rule. Um, We hear and expect that this should be issued at some point during the second quarter of 2023, which is now, and we may have better information at that point, or we should. But this, at the moment, remains only a proposed rule and not the final form. That said, it provides a baseline for any subsequent rule and which a number of companies and institutions are already reacting to and some sunset is complying with. So, what is this proposal? Last March, the SEC basically said that all companies which are filing their 10-Ks, their 10-Qs, um, basically the standard filings under the 33 Act and 34 Act, that they now need to include specific disclosures about climate risk in those filings. So what are these sorts of risks? Material climate risks. So the risks that a business may have as they respond to the climate transition, um, how a company manages and governs those risks. So what are the systems in place at a company for measuring, for auditing their climate-related activities? and They also want direct information about the greenhouse gas emissions of any particular company. Uh, Next slide. So what are the key takeaways here? First, this is going to apply to every issuer of securities in the United States. It's basically all public companies. There's no exception. There are other SEC rules which might provide exceptions for smaller reporting companies or for uh, foreign registrants. That's not the case here. This rule is sweeping as broadly as possible. They also want a separate section, which is going to be focused directly um, on climate risks. These are going to be audited financial statements and filed rather than furnished. Basically, this means that the information that is provided in these filings to the SEC has to be of a higher level of quality and subject to further assurance. There also is a relatively long phase in period. So for example, scope three greenhouse gas emissions would be subject to a safe harbor as long as these are Uh, produced in good faith. So actually, let me step back for a moment. Briefly for this audience, scope one, scope two, and scope three GHG um, emissions are usually how uh, companies and the government classifies it. Scope one is effectively the direct emissions by a particular company organization. Let's say you own a power plant or a fleet of trucks, That's going to be the emissions produced by that power plant or that fleet of trucks during the course of the normal operations. Scope two is going to be the greenhouse gas emissions relating to your use of electricity. So if you use electricity from hydroelectric or nuclear, actually, which has zero greenhouse gas emissions, that consumption of electricity will be better than if you get your electricity from a coal power plant. And scope three is effectively all your indirect greenhouse gas emissions up and down the line. So, taking the example of a fleet of trucks, you would also be responsible under scope three for the greenhouse gas emissions of the mines that produce the metal. And for, let's say, you're transporting cars on these trucks for potentially the use of the cars that are transported on the trucks and the greenhouse gas emissions when these trucks are recycled. Uh, in the smelters. There's often a lot of resistance to scope three because it's seen as um, not having a clear limiting factor. Um, So it's a harder one to measure. In any event, partially because of that reason, there would be a safe harbor for the scope three GHG emissions, uh, recognizing the difficulties in measuring that. There's also an extremely heavy focus on governance issues and how a company's board and management are addressing climate-related risks. Effectively, the SEC is wanting to know how frequently um, a company's board is discussing these issues. If there is an individual responsible, if there are individuals who have training or background in climate-related risks, if there's a member of management who has that same sort of training. This is um, unusually intrusive in terms of the information that the SEC uh, seeks. Um, Next slide. So speaking about some more content for this rule, it's not strictly focused on just GHG emissions or how a company is managing climate risks. They also want to know specifically what climate risks management has identified and how this will impact their their business, their strategy and their outlook. For example, there are a number of companies who engage in scenario analysis. What happens if temperatures rise by two degrees, by three degrees, by four degrees? The SEC now wants companies to provide the results Of some of these scenario analyses. Um, Similarly, they are interested in what the internal metrics that a company may use. So, one of the things that um, the SEC interests in is not only what is your total GHG emissions, but what is the intensity? For example, if you're producing a particular widget, how many emissions are linked to that particular widget. This would allow investors to be able to say, oh, this company produces 50 widgets at uh, with this amount of greenhouse gas emission. The same company produces the same number with half that amount of greenhouse gas emissions. They must use a better, more green-friendly process. And the idea being is that dollars and capital will be steered to companies who are more compliant with uh, green goals. And a lot of the information that the SEC is looking for, and I can go on for the entirety of the hour to describe their 500 page proposal, which is why I'm trying to summarize things here a little, is to provide the information to investors to allow them to make a reasoned decision about what kind of company they want to make use of their capital. And that's the origin of a lot of these particular demands. Next slide. So perhaps unsurprisingly, this proposal has been subject to the most number of comments uh, by the public in over a decade. There's almost 16,000 comments. Many of these are form letters. The overwhelming majority are in favor. There's also nearly 2,500 individual letters about evenly split between those in favor and those opposed. If you're wondering about the 4%, which expressed no position, those are often those saying, oh, this was, you should adjust your proposal in this respect, in this respect, in that respect and we offer no opinion on the overall merits of the proposal. So who are the supporters and those opposed? Well, frankly, it's those that you would expect. Most of the supporters tend to be uh, democratic politicians, some civil society organizations, professional service organizations, academics, and some individual corporations. Uh, Those opposed tend to be uh, Republicans, other corporations trade industry groups and some NGOs. The major objection (coughs) to these rules are that they are beyond the scope of the SEC's authority. They're ultra vires, And that is being telegraphed as one of the likely lines of attack on the rule. Uh, Next slide. So there have been changes to the rule, which the SEC has floated in the public uh, media. We'll see what may or may not survive in their final rule. I would just note two of these particular possible changes, one, that they may drop scope three entirely, and two, that they may increase the threshold uh, of materiality from 1% to a higher uh, threshold for reporting climate-related risks. These rules, whenever they're finalized, are going to be challenged. Uh, They will likely be challenged by industry. They will likely be challenged by uh, state-level political entities, Uh, Republican Attorneys General comes to mind. And a lot of folks think there is a greater chance that they will be overturned based on the Supreme Court's decision in West Virginia v. EPA and the major questions doctrine. Um, All that being said, look, The SEC has identified ESG investing as a major priority for its examinations. It has set a marker down by saying we want these kinds of financial disclosures. And frankly, everything since last March has been a reaction to what the SEC has put on the table, at least in the United States. There are a whole number of other reporting regimes, uh, particularly in Europe, which are beyond the scope of this presentation. Um, Next slide. I'll quickly go through a couple other things before uh, leaving it to Nikki and the in-house perspective, but just noting that even with all the focus on the federal government, there is a plethora of state-level rules, and that's both pro and uh, anti-ESG. A number of democratic states, um, Massachusetts, California, New York, They've passed bills, instituted rules and regulations that encourage uh, the use of ESG factors when making investments or encourage the boycotting or divesting from certain industries. Uh, 23 other states, mainly conservative ones, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Florida. They've passed bills, enacted rules and regulations that are intended to prohibit state investment vehicles, such as pension funds, from contracting with ESG investors or from any consideration of ESG factors. And these competing rules have put corporations in a bit of a, a hard place, uh, being trapped between uh, Scylla and Charybdis, because you can't, it's very difficult to finesse these competing rules if you're going to operate in both, let's say, Texas and California. And there have been consequences. There have been firms which have been blacklisted by state uh, governments, and that's cost them a good amount of business. Uh, Next slide. So just briefly talking about the anti-ESG rules, there are certain states that have already removed funds from prominent asset managers, uh, Florida and Texas in particular. There are exceptions, which has allowed some of these uh, investment managers to skirt these requirements or otherwise navigate around them, particularly if they consider ESG to be Cunary. Florida in particular has a number of loopholes. And just when you look at the different jurisdictions in which a company operates, it's important to understand what are the local rules. There are even particular rules that are adopted by municipalities or localities. And this is a prominent focus by government regulators on both the federal, state, and local levels. And folks need to be aware of that as uh, they conduct operations. Um, Nothing further, I will uh, thank you all for listening and I'll turn this over to uh, Nikki for the in-house perspective.
2: Thanks Jacob. Um, So while we get the the next set of slides up, um, I'm actually gonna hang out on the first slide for a little while, so you take your time. Um, But hi, I'm Nikki Adame Winningham, I'm Climate Sustainability Lead Counsel at Pfizer. I uh, still consider myself to be an environmental health and safety attorney. And so my practice generally focuses mostly on the E issues like climate action and some of the S issues like modern slavery and human rights. Um, And I figured what we could do today is sort of spend some time talking about the dichotomy that uh, Kirsten brought up in her presentation, right? The mandatory versus the voluntary disclosures. We can talk about some of the strategies and considerations we've had to work through as we. start to prepare for compliance with these mandatory paradigms and then uh, look at some examples of of both. Um, So you can go to the next slide. On the mandatory side, picking up where Jacob just left off, there's actually a lot more that we're focused on besides the SEC. SEC is huge. We are definitely waiting, although not holding our breath. Um, But we're also watching what's coming out of Europe. Europe has, Well, over the next three years, we actually expect approximately 10 new ESG disclosure regulations to become effective, mostly in the U.S. and Europe. Um, And as I learned recently, Norway is not part of Europe, so it's not part of the EU. So I'm using Europe in the like broad sense, right, not just the EU. Um, And with each new rule, we expect to see requirements focusing on, at a minimum, climate change and modern slavery. But... uh, We know at least one of those rules, the EU's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive and its sister uh, directive, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, or the CSRD and the CS3D are expected to focus on many more topics covering the full range of ESG issues. So let's think about some of the key considerations and strategies. One critical difference that I've noticed at least between... These new ESG rules and the more traditional environmental rules um, is the applicability assessment is much more complicated. So at least um, in my practice so far, I I could sometimes work it out by myself whether or not a rule applied or maybe I have to like tap a a subject matter expert to help understand a particular emission limit or a technology requirement. given the breadth of these regulations, the new regulations, the applicability determinations are requiring a huge cross-functional team to work through all of the considerations. So for example, with the EU CSRD, they use a tiered approach to the reporting deadlines with certain European entities potentially reporting earlier than non-EU entities. It's based not only on where the company is incorporated, but also the number of employees it may have, the amount of revenue or turnover over that it may have and then you have to sort of parse through well is the entity a jurisdictional entity and so it actually crosses you know it might cross more than one jurisdiction so now what what member state is it going to apply to and which set of employees does it will count uh likewise with the revenues too how do you sort of parse that out so it's it's uh, required a I've met so many people in my company that I did not know even existed thanks to the CSRD and CS3D um, But even that, once you figure out applicability, you still have to figure out what's actually required. We know disclosure is going to be an element. That's the end game, right? Is a report that we can publish wherever it's required to be published. But there's a lot more being required too. It's due diligence, it's corrective, or responsive actions. And in some cases, it's even preventative actions, right? Like not waiting for a problem to arise, but identifying it in your due diligence and preventing it from even occurring. And then once we work through all of that, we'll have to think about sort of the best way to report on whatever required to report on. And this sounds simple, but it isn't. Right. Because as a global company, we have multiple entities and and we're not the only ones. Right. I think we're we're seeing this across the board, whether it's a European and focused entities or global entities that are headquartered in other countries outside of Europe is is sort of which entity makes sense for the reporting? When does it make sense? Which operations will it cover? Does it make sense for climate change? Does it also make sense for the financial metrics? And so things that we didn't used to think about as being sort of handled the same are now having to be thought of in ways that that might require more some uh, sort of, you know, sticking some square pegs in brown holes um, and comparing apples and oranges in the same place. And then sort of the, the foundational background consideration for all ESG disclosures, whether voluntary or mandatory, is a careful assessment of the potential risks of disclosure and non-disclosure, right? So what data do we have to substantiate our statements? What controls do we have in place to help ensure that the data is accurate and complete? Are we consistent across various disclosures that the company might make, um, and you'll see some examples in a second, and then also considering that risk here doesn't just mean legal risk, right, like compliance with the regulation, but also reputational risk, potential financial impacts, or other potential impacts that you might have to consider just in terms of making environmental commitments or setting those goals and targets, Um, So if we go to the next slide, you can see an example of one of our current mandatory reporting requirements. Since approximately 2010, Pfizer's been reporting on our work to manage human rights in the supply chain pursuant to the California and the UK Modern Slavery Acts. Until now, the rules have generally required due diligence and disclosure of those diligence efforts with a relatively narrow focus on human rights in the supply chain and and maybe some touches on what's happening in our operations as well. The new rules will likely expand that scope of human rights to include not just what we think of as sort of traditional workplace human rights, but also other, all the other human rights that, that, that might exist. And uh, this can include among others, the right to a healthy environment, which then triggers environmental impact issues for the communities where we operate and potentially where our suppliers are operating. So um, one of the ways we've begun addressing this in the background is our human rights policy statement. We actually, we've had it for a while. It's uh, requiring more updates as these arenas sort of evolve and evolve so quickly. Um, So our current human rights policy statement acknowledges this broader scope of human rights for our supply chain and for our operations. And it does sort of two things. One, we are committed to this policy, but it also means that for our supply chain, we expect our suppliers to operate their businesses in a responsible and ethical manner, respecting human rights and, and considering the same human rights that we are considering, if not more. If we go to the next slide, you can see an example of a voluntary ESG disclosure. We do publish an ESG report. We've been publishing one since 2020 for the reporting year 2019. And we publish it uh, on for the company as a whole. And then we publish it on our website with our annual review. So it follows the, the annual filings for the SEC. The foundation of our company's of of really of everything we do, right, is our purpose to deliver breakthroughs that change patients' lives. So uh, with that sort of in mind, we conducted an ESG priority assessment and identified six ESG priorities that we would then set targets for and report on our progress in these ESG reports. Um, So they're listed here, but I'll I'll go ahead and um, read them too. It's our six priority areas are product innovation, equitable access and pricing, product quality and safety, business ethics, DE&I, and climate change. And so I thought we could spend um, just as an example, a little bit of time on climate change. But before we do that, I'll just say too, we measure our progress across these six ESG priorities with a total of 32 key performance indicators or KPIs. Um, So if we go to the next slide, you'll see that we have um, set a goal for climate change. This is actually our fourth generation and climate action target. We are currently aiming to achieve the voluntary net zero standard by 2040. This means that we aim to reduce our company greenhouse gas emissions, the scope one and two emissions that Jake was talking about earlier uh, by 95% and reduce our value chain emissions, our scope three emissions by 90%, all compared to a 2019 baseline. Um, and, I won't go into the details of our progress. We have a whole report on that. So I'll direct you to pfizer.com where you can find that and our progress against all of the other ESG priorities, plus some other things that we are aware of, like modern slavery that didn't um, end up as a priority itself, but but are nonetheless um, interesting for our stakeholders and our investors and our uh, everybody, really. So um, I think with that, I'll go ahead and turn it back to Lauren for Q&A. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nikki. And thanks, everyone, for very fascinating uh, presentations. I'm learning a lot today. So, this is an invitation for our attendees to submit questions through the chat. Um, And I will get um, the first question uh, kicked off to our panelists. So, the first question is What do you think the most exciting part about working in ESG is? And we can go in order.
1: Um, So we'll start with Kirsten. That's a good question. I really appreciate being able to work in an area that is just constantly moving. I think there's just so much going on and there's so many new proposals out there, as Nikki mentioned, that at times it can be overwhelming to keep them all in track and in order but it also presents a really wonderful opportunity to learn what everyone is doing and how they compare and then provide insight to others about how these compare and line up so and it's all within climate environmental social issues which I'm personally excited about so
3: I would also just echo the idea of the novelty here. There are whole areas of law where the individual facts may change, but the paradigm and the structure has remained constant for decades, if not more. What we're dealing with in ESG is their constant developments, be it on Capitol Hill, be it in, um, with regulators, be it with a state-level action. And, yeah, it does keep you on your toes, but also keeps you very much engaged to keep track of everything that's happening. And when you expand your purview to include what's going on in Europe and elsewhere, then bluntly, there's something happening every day. And that's a nice place to be. I think we have
2: funny definitions of nice, right? Yeah. Um, but I I agree I mean I think um, I was thinking back to law school and you know it's more years ago than I even am prepared to admit but um, even then right like environmental law was settled right we knew a lot about it there's still new litigation and you know circle and rigro will forever give us new things to think about but you have some really good foundations we're gonna and I was always a little bit jealous right so this is it this is we're we're help writing new laws, right? We're between our advocacy efforts, our comment letters, the new rules that are coming and the way that they'll evolve. Like we're creating new law and that's that's sort of exciting too, slash daunting.
0: That's definitely very cutting edge. So thank you for those answers. Um, the next question is to Jacob and Kirsten. So this question is, what are clients doing in order to be more proactive on the ESG front?
3: Oh, I'll start unless uh, you want to, Kirsten. What I would say is this, look, we have all of these, I'll call them potential reporting regimes, which are not yet um, set in place by a particular regulator. But a lot of the information that the SEC, uh, in particular, but also others may want, is stuff that you can't just type in something into an Excel spreadsheet or click your mouse a couple of times and then oh here's the answer and we can plug it into our SEC filing or what some investors demanding without any problem. A lot of these, um, a lot of this information requires effort to develop, you have to figure out what kind of information you need. You need to figure out what are the reporting lines. You need to figure out how this information is going to be audited to provide the sort of high quality data that a company will need in order to comply with the SEC rules or with another set of rules. Because most companies think that, oh, even if the SEC rules are watered down or end up not being fully um, enforced for a couple of years, it's still a marker. It's going to be what some investors are demanding, and there probably will be something similar to these eventually. So, what I've been seeing, particularly, say, the last six to nine months, is companies reaching out both to law firms, to consultants, to the accounting firms, and basically saying, What do we need to do? today to put ourselves in the best position for when we need to comply with some of these rules that are perhaps now more um, hortatory or anticipatory rather than actual. And there's a lot of just laying the groundwork and all of that takes time. There are companies would say, we even need an ESG, just a general ESG policy, which had not yet been um, a priority. And I'd say, what I'm seeing, at least in my practice, is a lot of folks saying, okay, let's lay the groundwork. We're not gonna necessarily publish anything now, but let's get ourselves in a position where we would be able to provide high quality information.
1: Yeah, I would, I would echo what Jacob said. I would also say that we're seeing a lot of companies make sure that, be cognizant of the goals that they're making. And being and that means being aware of both the proposed and anticipatory rules, but also being aware of what the companies have already done in the past with regards to climate or E S N G. And so really taking stock of where they are and kind of pivoting to a forward-looking stance that both aligns with what they think will come with these rules and also kind of what aligns with the the company's specific mission. And it's neat to see how these companies are they're in a tight spot like they want to make these efforts and goals but then you have heightened scrutiny on the other side saying well you better make it perfect because there's a risk of litigation or a risk of a complaint and so help we've seen increased a number of companies just try to navigate that kind of tension in a way that is balanced and that I think in mind kind of leads to a more proactive ESG approach.
0: Thank you. Um, And the next question in a similar vein is for Nikki and it is um, what are the next big ESG priorities for Pfizer Um, or also
2: anything you wanna do uh, say in response to Jacob and, and Kirsten? No, I mean I think it's it's all yeah it's all true right, and we're doing all of those things and and figuring out sort of that compliance readiness component because even with some of the longer lead times, like we know it's going to take us a while to like get there. And then uh, I will say too, the other half of it is it's evolving so quickly. We're really having to work on how to monitor for these new requirements, right? Like it's pretty easy to catch the things coming out of the EU, the US, Canada, some of the bigger markets, right? But some of the smaller markets where we're still active but we just don't have as many eyes and ears on the ground, right? Like how do we catch those too? How do we make sure we're um, seeing them all and preparing for all of the new rules that might apply to us? Um, in terms of ESG priorities more generally, It's one of the questions we're asking ourselves now, right? We're going to probably need to redo our ESG priority assessment to reconsider sort of what's come online in the last three or four years. Where are we heading? What are the trends saying? And then uh, something we didn't really talk about today, but I know you guys are aware of it too, is that the concept of double materiality coming out of some of the new proposals, right? So materiality is usually what is the impact on the company, the financial impact of whatever issue you're looking at and double materiality spins that back around and says, what is the impact of our work in that space on the world, right? In the community where we're operating, in the particular society. It, you know, it depends on the issue. And so I think that adds a new layer to our priority assessment that we're going to have to, to sort of figure out. It's um I hear this phrase more and more, but I feel like it's really true. Like we're sort of flying the airplane and building it at the same time.
0: Yes, it certainly sounds that way. Um, So we've covered all the questions. I'll give uh, one more opportunity for any closing thoughts. I mean, I think the big takeaway here today is that this is a very fast evolving area of the law. Um, And, you know, it seems like we should have the three of you back next year, and we'll have so many updates in SEC rules. And really, um, I think today's been a a great, um, great overview of, of ESG. And I our audience has really enjoyed it so any
2: closing thoughts before we end today's panel so i might offer that um it was actually something jacob said about the esg policy right and we we've had the same discussion in internally and, and where we're where at least i am landing right i won't promise that the we've made a company decision on this right um esg can touch everything Right. It started out, I think, as some sort of discrete areas in the E and the S and the G. But really, if you think about it, it can touch just every aspect of the business, whatever the business is. And it will vary by each business, but it could be anything. Certainly makes
0: your job interesting. Yes. So. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much um, to our three panelists and thank you to our audience. Um, This was recorded. So, um, yeah, thanks so much.